Support for the Capital Connection comes from New York State United Teachers, working to support students, educators, and public schools as the center of their communities with Public Schools Unite Us initiative and United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. It's the Capital Connection. Hi, I'm David Gustina. Joining us this week, we're so glad she's back, New York State Senator Liz Kruger. She's a Democrat, chair of the Finance Committee in the Senate, and serves New York's 28th district on the east side of Manhattan. Welcome back, Senator Liz Kruger. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Well, I'm going to start with what people will call a softball question, but, you know, I think it makes sense. Tell us a little bit about that district, and who who is your average constituent? Ooh, so my district? changed actually quite a bit in the new redistricting effective January 23. So even though I have been the senator of District 28 um, since February 2002, when I won a special election after losing the previous election by 0.0001%, it's changed this time by moving further west. So I'm no longer just the East Side State Senator. I've got Central Park for people who know Manhattan. I've got the Midtown area south of Central Park. I have the Times Square area. Everyone knows about that. The Penn Station, Macy's, Herald Square area, um, a decent chunk of Chelsea, Flatiron District. And then I've got also have that little island in the river between Manhattan and Queens called Roosevelt Island, ah. which was never mine before, but is a fascinating um, sort of set of issues in its own right. So I don't know what my average constituent is. I do know I have a district that has millions of people come through it every day for work or tourism, even if they don't live in my district. I've got all the major hospitals in New York City in my district. I joke that my district's nickname is Bedpan Alley. Um, I have most of the UN consulates in my district, although the UN now has actually been moved to a district by my Queens colleague, uh, Kristen Gonzalez, who actually now has a portion of my old district on the east side of Manhattan in her Queens, Brooklyn, Manhattan district, and no one should try to have a district in three boroughs. It's too complicated. Um, so I think I see a little bit of everything, um, including world events, because those are also ending up here in New York, obviously, and heavily in my district in the major sections. Um, you know, I have Rockefeller Center with the tree lighting last night but also pretty much every protest that ever happens anywhere in the city of New York um, directly in my district as well. Is that a good visual of it? I'm still fascinated with Roosevelt Island because (laughs) what are the issues on Roosevelt? You said it's got its own unique set of issues. Tell us about Roosevelt Island and and what those issues might be. Sure. So Roosevelt Island is technically New York City land, but in a deal with New York State is a state government entity running it. There's a 
Roosevelt Island Operating Corporation that is the government of Roosevelt Island for most things on a daily basis. The entire island are buildings that were built under land lease in a deal with the city and the state. So there's not private ownership per se in a normal sense of any of the buildings on Roosevelt Island. You have to go through the quote-unquote REOC government even if you just want to rent retail space there. Um, the fire department and the police come across from Queens on a bridge, even though most of the electeds, I guess all the electeds now, Congress, Senate, Assembly, City Council, are Manhattan electeds. And that adds to the confusion also. Um, it's about 13,000 people. A significant number of them have lived there since the island building started becoming available 40 years ago. Um, we also have a giant, um, beautiful park at the bottom of the island, the um, Roosevelt for Freedoms Park. And we have a university that's just not even finished being built yet, um, the Cornell Technion um, Technology College University that Mike Bloomberg, when he was mayor, set up giving the land for this purposes. He did an RFP to universities all over the country and the world. I want a tech university built here in New York, and I'll give you this land on Roosevelt Island if you come and build. And there was a big competition and a joint venture between Technion in Israel and Cornell, um, quote-unquote, won the bid with the best proposal. And they've got a whole university going up there, lots of buildings and students and professors already, I think with plans for more. We're speaking with Senator Liz Kruger, a Democrat. You, of course, mentioned redistricting and how your district has changed. And that's been quite a fight going on in New York, still continuing. We're at, what, the uh, Court of Appeals. And there was some blame being thrown around that because of the redistricting mess. It was why Congress and the New York's and the House of Representatives lost some seats in New York. And where are you on this whole redistricting thing? Because it doesn't seem like a very democratic process from the beginning. Oh, my goodness. It's very hard to explain redistricting in the context of federal law and history, uh, because I won't disagree throughout history, particularly here in New York, we were one of the worst gerrymandered states in the country. I watched as my colleagues in the Senate who were Republican majority, basically from 1939 through 2018, with tiny exceptions, being totally Republican majority all that time, and watching them redistrict every 10 years to what I believe were violations of the Constitution, but nobody ever successfully challenged them in court. We tried over the years so that you had districts in upstate New York and Long Island that were underpopulated with people compared to districts in New York City and the more urban democratic sections of the state. So technically for years and years and years, people in my district had less of a say um, in the legislature because they had more people having to fight over one senator. 
you know, we always believe that there should have been an additional two New York City Senate seats versus upstate because of population changes, and that didn't happen. Um, and so ultimately, we did win enough seats to take the majority, and there was redistricting. And we believe that the redistricting for the New York State Senate that took place um, right before January 23 started, we believe that that redistricting was completely legitimate based on the math and the numbers and the demographics in New York State. Um, people challenged both the assembly and the congressional lines, and the congressional lines are what everybody's confronting now about what's going to happen here. And I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, that's really the interesting discussion for us at this moment in history. Regardless of how people read constitutional interpretations of gerrymandering, I love that word, um, and where we are right now, the question is, we're going to have an election for Congress November 24 and primaries several months earlier, and people who are running or existing as Congress people or thinking about running still sincerely don't know what their districts are going to look like. And that's, to say the least, um, a little overwhelming if you get involved in the political process. I mean, we have so many people who say they're running for certain seats. I'm like, really, they're all of you? Well, maybe not, because it might not be the district we think it is. We don't know yet. So you look at Long Island, and it's sort of amazing what might happen there. And I don't know, and none of us know, we're waiting. Well, and certainly when you have Republicans and Democrats and the legislature working on district lines, it all becomes partisan in nature, and we don't seem to ever get to a real independent review. So we, in theory, changed the rules so that there would be an independent commission, but in my personal opinion, it was very badly designed and set up to fail. And with all due respect, that's sort of what it did. Um, and so then we went to the courts and the courts made decisions, which were also incredibly political. I mean, the state of New York has 20 and a half million people and the opponents of the redistricting that took place through the legislature went judge shopping judge shop yeah. and found a, I think, a acting Supreme Court judge in a county with 5,000 people in it, right, but who was guaranteed to side with the Republican Party, and that's what he did. And so a person, I'm not sure who's ever visited New York City, uh, or Long Island, or below Albany, for all I know, was the one who decided how to redraw the maps for the Congress in the state. I'm sorry, I don't think the judges doing it is a very good model either. And we see that in state after state, by the way. New York's, New York's not the only one sure. with these very strange storylines when it comes to redistricting. You're listening to The Capital Connection, and we're speaking with Senator Liz Kruger, a Democrat from Manhattan. I want to get to the environment because I know this is a big issue. You have a number of things that you're working on. Before I yeah. do that, though, I did see this morning in City and State, I don't know if you noticed this, that 
Here's the headline. Hochul to abandon required construction mandates in ambitious housing plan. The governor is backing off the requirement in a policy which has little legislative support. And as Democrats face competitive and consequential elections in 2024, Governor Hochul plans to back off the required construction mandates in her housing plan. What do you make of that news? So I read that headline also. I quite to quickly read the article this morning. I sincerely don't get it. Yes, she put out a very large housing plan last year. Some people had concerns with some pieces of it. Well, no kidding. Of course they would. The legislature didn't say we won't do anything. The legislature said we have some concerns about some things. And there was not nearly enough discussion before she rolled out the proposal, during when the proposal was being, in theory, negotiated, or afterwards. And many of us were very angry that she walked away from her housing plan last year with nothing on the table left. So we actually attempted in the legislature in the end of June, after the budget was done, to get a two-house bill supported by enough members of both houses that we knew we could pass it that would get the ball significantly down the field. Something's different than what the governor proposed. Something's exactly what the governor proposed. That we really wanted to do is freestanding legislation because so many of us from all over the state understand that the future of affordable housing and expanding the universe of housing and protecting and stabilizing housing that is getting older and needs investment are crucial in every single district of the state. So we truly believe she would be coming right back to the table in this coming budget year to say, okay, we didn't get these things done. Let's sit down at a table. Let's hash this stuff out. Let's make progress in 24. That article implies not so much, but as far as I'm concerned, it is still a top priority for both houses of the legislature, and I am committed to working on moving forward with significant legislation in the arena of housing in this coming year, and I am not alone. I know I have many, many colleagues who feel the exact same way. So maybe that article was a text balloon to see whether anybody would go, what are you talking about? We're not really doing housing. Damn it, we have to. So I'm saying to you today, damn it, we have to. You heard it from State Senator Liz Krueger. Well, let's go to one of the biggest challenges we face as a world. That's climate change. And we have seen that impact in New York directly, including in the latest, by the way, piece of land that crumbled down onto the Amtrak tracks not so long ago that delayed the train. So we know that climate change is happening and we have to continue to do more to mitigate the impacts. The governor, as you suggest, has yet to sign your Tropical Deforestation Free Procurement Act. I know you did a little uh, editorializing on this in the Daily News. Can you tell us a little bit about this Tropical Deforestation Free Procurement Act? I'm very proud of work I've been doing on a number of major environmental pieces of legislation. The deforestation bill very simply says New York State in contracting, we're not telling you what you can or cannot do as a citizen or a business. We're saying if you want to do business with the state of New York, where we pay for things, you have to stop using products that are coming from the borealis rainforests around the world that are being completely destroyed at a faster and faster rate, primarily by major international companies who make deals with governments 
or just go in illegally and tear down these forests, destroy the natural environment, which has enormous impact because it's the rainforest on the entire world's climate situation, destroy indigenous communities who have actually been on the land for thousands of years and being good stewards of the land, tearing down the trees to use as products themselves, then turning the land into plantations to grow things such as palm oil, cocoa, coffee, soy, that then is taken from that country and sold abroad to places like us in New York. And so this bill would say, you want to do business with us? Prove to us through a through a contract commitment that you're not buying products from the deforested and tropical rainforest areas of the world because the United States is hugely responsible, our companies, um, for this damage going on. This is not a radical bill. The entire European Union has passed the same law. We're working with other states so that they are watching to see what happens here so that they will do the same thing, we hope. And it can have an enormous impact on these areas that maybe none of us will ever go visit in South America, Central America, Indonesia, the Philippines, um, Africa, um, West Africa particularly. Um, The stories coming out of there are just devastating. The stories coming out of South and Central America with destruction of the rainforest is just devastating. And please, for everyone to understand, there's alternatives. There's absolutely alternatives for all of these products. New York won't, won't be stuck not being able to build things or buy things that we need. We just have to make sure we're not buying them from those parts of the world. From there, let's talk about the Climate Change Superfund Act. So it's also a pretty simple bill to understand. We already have a model for a federal Superfund Act where we make polluters pay for damage done on the land, right? That's been in existence for years, implemented in New York as it is implemented all over the country. This is a Superfund Act for climate damage, and climate damage is far, far more of a problem for us at this point in history than specific chunks of land having pollution. I'm not knocking that. It's a critical program already. But we need to do the same for our environment, our clean air, our clean water, our future. And we know who caused that damage. It's oil and gas companies. And so this bill, who, by the way, knew they were causing this damage for the last 50 years and went ahead and purposely lied to us. Just like the tobacco companies denied they were killing people with cigarettes forever, we finally caught them at it, and then we started to make them pay retribution and remediation. That's what this bill does. It says, you all created this problem. We would like you, the the oil and gas companies, the largest oil and gas companies in the world, to help pay for the cost of remediation Because if you don't pay, the taxpayers are going to have to pay. We're still going to have to pay a lot of it. But this bill says you all will have to give us $3 billion a year for 25 years. That's $75 billion over 25 years specifically to help us remediate the damage 
that is going on already and costing us far, far more than we would ever see from the oil and gas companies. But let's remember, even though we're trying hard to get everybody in the world off of oil and gas, these companies, for a variety of political reasons, are having the best economic years they've ever had in their lives. That's right. They have like $750 billion, with a B, in, in profits after expenses over the last, I want to say four years. I'm not sure the number of years, but a very short period of time. So they're raking in the money, and they're continuing to do enormous damage, not meeting their obligations to pull out of oil and gas. And we're already seeing, as you just described with the Amtrak situation, incredible damage to our infrastructure. We know our expenses are going to go up. The federal government told us we need to build a seawall in lower Manhattan, um, in the water just south of Manhattan, to make sure Manhattan Island doesn't completely flood south of 14th Street forever. So that's $50 billion for that one project. And we have an entire state where any local elected could tell you the stories they are experiencing of infrastructure costs that are specifically related to the damage that is already happening from climate change. So simply, hey, big oil gas companies, you cause the damage, you have to help pay for fixing it. Well, we only hope we can make progress as a world on this issue, and I know you're trying to do your part in New York. It's enough to make you want to go smoke pot. You know what I mean? New York. <laughs> There's your transition. New what York cannabis <laughs> regulators have approved a deal to settle lawsuits that have blocked recreational marijuana shops from opening. This is a big deal. It's taken a long time. I've spoken oh, to your eyes. counterpart in the assembly, the majority leader, Crystal People Stokes, and she's been, uh, you know, asking for patience. But are we going to get this thing up and going, and are we going to stop the illegal shops? I think both. Yes, it's taken way longer than anyone realized. Although, in fairness, every other state that went legal, it took them a good two years to get themselves up and running. So we're just at the two-year mark. We're not actually behind what happened in all the other states that legalized, although we have, we're bigger and better. And so, ironically, we've had bigger and worse problems rolling out. I don't like cannabis personally. I don't use it. I've been having to explain that now for seven years as I've been the lead sponsor trying to get this legislation done. It was always about why the hell are we giving statistically almost every young person of color a criminal record for doing something not only that I did do when I was a teenager, but white teenagers do in just exactly the same rate. But we were using this as a continued disturbing story of racism within criminal justice for a product that has been proven by medical science to be less dangerous than cigarettes by far and less dangerous than alcohol, and yet we sell and tax those. So I set out to try to decriminalize this product, decrease young people of color's involvement in a criminal justice system they should not be in, make a new industry that is legal and taxed and can be assured for people is safe because in a system of legal cannabis shops, you will know what you were buying. It will be tested from seed to sale. We have that system in place. We haven't been able to get enough of the legal shops open because several lawsuits were brought against our law that were funded by large cannabis companies from around the world 
who frankly don't like our model of making sure that a significant percentage of our shops in New York State will be small, independent shops that people who had a history of being damaged by the illegal system would have an opportunity to become entrepreneurs and owners and workers in these legal shops. And if you're a big corporation, I'll use just Coke and Pepsi as an example, who were just like, you know, well, why should everybody just do these small independent mom and pop shops when some giant international corporation could run everything in the state of New York? And that has happened in several other states. And Crystal and I were committed to not letting that happen. And so when we won what we wanted in the legislation, some of these guys said, well, let's just muck with their system so badly that it collapses. And everybody says, I guess that didn't work. We just have to give it to major corporations to run everything. And so that was really the story behind those lawsuits. But they've been settled now. So we should see a significant uptick of independent small store licenses rolling out. At the same time, large numbers of illegal stores have popped up all over the state. There's over a 1,000 in New York City easily, maybe 3,000. It's hard to count illegal shops. Some people think every person who used to deal marijuana behind buildings deciding to come forward, rent a shop, and open it up. That's also not true. It turns out there's significant venture capital money behind these illegal shops with some folks saying, hey, until they figure out how they can close this all down, I can make a killing, so to speak, selling illegal pot in these stores. They have the same products in them, which are falsely advertised as legal California product being sold here. Those are all fake information and materials. You don't know what you're buying when you go into an illegal store. So we need more law enforcement to participate in the closing of these shops. We did recognize that in our first bill, we had not understood the complications of this reality. And so we made some changes in coordination with the governor to give law enforcement more opportunities to go after and close these illegal shops. Ironically, we figured out and now are highlighting that if you knowingly rent a facility to an illegal business, such as an illegal marijuana shop, you, the landlord, can actually be held liable. And so we're working with DAs around the state to make sure everybody understands renting out knowingly to somebody who's doing a legal business is a bad move, and we're going to hold you accountable. Well, I'm afraid to say we're out of time. She is State Senator Liz Kruger, a Democrat from Manhattan, and it's always a pleasure to speak with you on the Capital Connection. I only hope we'll be able to speak in the future. I look forward to it. Please invite me again. The Capital Connection is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. You can listen to The Capital Connection anytime at wamcpodcast.org or anywhere you get your podcast. And join us again next week at this same time for another political conversation. For The Capital Connection, I'm David Gustina. Support for The Capital Connection comes from New York State United Teachers, working to support students, educators, and public schools as the center of their communities through the Public Schools Unite Us initiative.